Welcome to the Proceedings Podcast. I'm Ward Carroll, the Naval Institute's Director of Outreach. Joining me is my usual co-host, the Editor-in-Chief of Proceedings Magazine, Bill Hamlet. Hi, Bill. Hey, Ward. How are you? Happy Friday. Happy, yes. It's been a long week. Uh, we'll tell our regular audience, especially the folks on Facebook who are wondering, uh, they've gotten used to Studio C. Today we're back in Studio A. Otherwise known as your office. Known as my office, where the the podcast, you know, uh, sprung from. You know, very a lot of history. It's like Abbey Road, you know, with the Beatles. Studio A is a very historic setting. Uh, but in any case, yeah, we're we're here in, uh, in my office today for uh, for episode thirty nine thirty nine of the podcast, which is fantastic. Thanks everybody for your support. The numbers are getting better and better, um, and uh, it, we're we're actually uh, going to make an announcement in weeks to come um, about some other exciting developments around the podcast. Um, so fantastic. Uh, as we usually do, Bill, let's start with uh, some things happening around the fleet, specifically things that relate to discussions we've had on previous episodes of the podcast. Yeah, so I saw this morning in the uh, Chinfo clips, There's a, started off, the first piece was uh, SecNav Spencer talking about naval aviation readiness uh, showing an upswing, and that as a result of a lot of money that the Navy has pumped into its aviation fleet uh, in both FY 2017 and this year, uh, some of those problems that we talked about, particularly last year with naval aviation, and we talked to the air boss last year, and that was an interview that went in proceedings in the September issue last year, uh, and that the number of you know griped jets across the fleet was significant, right? And so this is interesting that uh, SecNav Spencer first talking about Marine Corps aviation combat elements says compared to the year before. Aircrew flight hours increased 13.4% in 17 and 32% in FY18. And then um, generate, you know, going from Generation 4 to Generation 5 aircraft uh, were up 46%, uh, 46% complete in the Marine Corps by adding 94 F-35Bs to the, to the Marine fleet. And then he went on to talk about some of the... Um, uh, issues with uh, Navy F-18s, the Super Hornet strike fighter fleet also benefiting from a focus on depot processes. We're getting after long-term down airframes, and we had heard about that from a couple of aviators that we had on the on the podcast uh, and also some proceedings articles about that problem. Uh, and he says, we added 29 full mission-capable uh, Super Hornets since January, so 29 aircraft that had been long term down are now back in the you know in the flying rotation so up uh, from 270 super hornets to um, uh, up from 241 to 270 uh, FMC super hornets so that's good news uh, and you know you wouldn't expect that with the budget that uh, the navy received in the yeah, past and year yeah i think the only bad news element of that is we're just relearning old lessons right flight hour funding goes down readiness goes down mishap rates go up you lose talented maintainers because of uh, things like higher tenure or other uh, PNS uh, exam schedules or whatever. Um, so yeah, great great job to uh, to tackle once it becomes a systemic problem. Um, what we deal with here in the independent forum is trying to prevent these things from reaching crisis levels. Uh, but certainly a good news uh, story there. Right. We have several aviators on our editorial board, uh, Major Mike Lippert, U.S. Marine Corps F-35 pilot, and we've got uh, just de- 
departed from the board this week. Bus Snodgrass, commander, U.S. Navy, who commanded an F-18 squadron out in Japan. Uh, we were talking about this a little bit at the end of our editorial board meeting on Wednesday. Uh, a number of issues. You know, we always have our, our roundtable discussion with the editorial board all of whom are active duty service members, Navy, Marine Corps, Coast Guard, you know, what's foremost in the, uh, in terms of problems, issues, um, you know, and progress being made out in the fleet. Uh, and Guy mentioned, or Bus mentioned, um, you know, yes, aviation is, um, maintenance rates are up. Um, they're getting birds through depot maintenance, all that stu- stuff. But he said, you know, the, the, Part of it that still has to be focused on is the fact that, you know, it's a long-term um, deficit, right? So we went yeah. through years where we, we created this bathtub, and now we've got to get out of the bathtub, and that requires a sustained level of effort for not just a year or two, but it's going to be, you know, more and more, you know, continued right. years to get all those aircraft through the depot uh, and, and back to FMC. So yep. um, the, the second thing I saw in, the, uh, in Chinfo Clips today was related to our conversation with temporary acting uh, Mick Pond, uh, Fleet Master Chief Russ Smith, two weeks ago was on our on the podcast. Is that his official title, temporary uh, acting? Temporary acting, acting temporary. He's his his official title is Fleet Master Chief Smith, and he's he's the manpower he's the training. Acting Mick Pond. He's the acting Mick, yeah. P- Mick Pond right now. We're pulling for him to be the permanent. His next, name is in the hat. Yep, his name is in the hat for uh, the, to be the next uh, permanent Mick Pond. But he talked to us a little bit about the Sailor 2025 program and some of the things that that program is doing to address uh, shortfalls in manning in the fleet uh, and also changing career paths. And so this uh, Navy Times article today talked about the change to high-year tenure for uh, for senior um, petty officers, so chiefs, uh, senior chiefs, master chiefs, allowing them to stay past their high-year tenure point if they choose to go back to sea duty billets, right? So if you're a master chief and you know, you're, you're getting towards the end of your high-year tenure and you say to the Navy, hey, I want to go back to sea and, and uh, fill a critical gap at sea, the Navy's letting you do that. So uh, E7, E8, E9 uh, being allowed to stay longer uh, and, and fill sea duty billets um, in order to do that. So I think that's a, a good news. It was something that, that Fleet Smith touched on with us uh, two weeks ago. So. Uh, so that's so the podcast making a big difference. We can tell from Chin Chinfo clips. There we go. That's my takeaway. Right. <laughs> <laughs> it was on the podcast, and then suddenly it and changed. There there, a good outcome. Ergo, ergo. Right. Uh, so let's go right to our guest now. So joining us from San Diego, uh, from the USS Carl Vinson CVN seventy, we have Lieutenant Caitlin Davidson, who wrote in the July issue of Proceedings, and nobody asked me, but called JOs can fix SWO training. Uh, Lieutenant Davidson, uh, welcome to the podcast. Good morning. How are you all? We're doing great. It's afternoon here, morning there. Um, <laughs> so uh, you are a surface warfare officer currently assigned to an aircraft carrier. So tell us a little bit about that. You mentioned uh, just before we started here that you uh, that the Carl Vinson just came back from RIMPAC. Tell us a, a bit about what the ship did and what you did during that underway. Right, so uh, RIMPAC was the, the multi-nation overseas exercise with uh, formerly China, but you had a lot of people coming in and just showing a big exercise of naval force and naval power. Uh, the Chileans showed up, they had the Philippines showed up, it was Vietnam was there, and it was a lot of missile exes, um, a lot of sinking exercises, and 
the carrier was able to host a lot of really distinguished visitors and show, show great American sea power at its best. Um, a little bit different than surface warfare life. It's much, much bigger and much, many more people and a lot more senior folks. But it's been a really great experience thus far. So tell us, uh, we have in uh, in the magazine, page 1415 is your uh, Nobody Asked Me But. Uh, I'll read this and then you can fill in the blanks a little bit. Uh, Lieutenant Davidson is a surface warfare officer, a 2013 graduate of the U.S. Naval Academy, was a Marshall Scholar in the United Kingdom, graduating from Cambridge University in 2014 and Oxford in 2015. You're the third J.O. on the podcast in the last couple of months who we've interviewed who was a, uh, a Marshall Scholar. So we, Ward and I were never that smart. And it's, uh, it's but it's all, now mandatory to uh, be a Marshall Scholar, to be a guest on the podcast, there we go. I guess. Yeah. What, that's another <laughs> takeaway. So uh, that, that's incredibly impressive. So congrats on that. Uh, so then you became a, uh, a surface warfare officer. What was your first duty station or your first ship? I was the communications officer on board the USS Bruins, so DG-111, um, down 32nd Street in San Diego. Cool. And when did right you leave? across the bay. Yep. When did you leave Spruins? I left Spruins in February of 2018 with a four-month PAD right before I left. And uh, and then you went to the – when did you join the Carl Vinson? I checked in April, mid-April 2018 this year, so right when they got back from deployment. Got it. Just a couple months ago. So mm-hmm. uh, big change going from uh, – a DDG to uh, an aircraft carrier. Oh yeah, definitely. What's it like being a SWO on a carrier? Um, there's there's a lot of perceptions about the way that the surface navy is versus the way that aircraft carriers are, and we're very used to having our main mission be you know surface ship stuff. So have, going from that kind of a platform where Aegis is God to an SSCS ship um, and where the aviators run everything and everything is in support of flight operations. It's kind of a strange shift, but they do things differently in some ways better in some ways. Maybe I'd like to see a little bit more black shoe around, but it's, it's, it's interesting to see a different model of cool. how like a ship could be run. And you got a lot of time uh, driving the ship when you're out at RIMPAC? I, I do. So the, the the pipeline for becoming an officer of the deck is much different on a carrier than on a small boy. First, uh, you, you start off as a junior officer of the watch, which is communications and checklists, which is something typically a much more senior divo will start taking over on the route to becoming the officer of the deck, whereas conning is its own venture entirely on the carrier and requires a lot more practice before they'll let you do it alone. Well, let, let's tee up the thesis of your article in the July issue and, and then interweave that with your uh, most recent at-sea experience. Let me read one of the introductory paragraphs as sort of a scene setter. So the second paragraph of your article titled, J.O.'s Can Fix SWO Training, uh, goes, The Navy released in early June the results of a study that quantifies those holes, which are the holes in professional knowledge that you talk about in the first paragraph. 164 junior SWOs were graded by more senior officers on a test on the rules of the road and a practical scenario. Only 27 received a grade of, quote-unquote, no concerns, while 108 were scored as, quote-unquote, some concerns, and the remaining 29 were flagged with, quote-unquote, serious concerns. Vice Admiral Richard Brown, the new SWO boss, called the results, quote, sobering. 
And then you said, this is not a surprise. So tell us why this is not a surprise. So I, I'm actually kind of shocked that there are there aren't more serious concerns, um, and I'd wager that this is a. I, I wager that a lot of it might have been being generous. Um, obviously, I was not privy to that that study, but service training in the fleet right now has taken, at least in my experience, has taken such a hit due to operational constraints. Due to just things that you need to get done, due to daily maintenance, due to just you wanting to have some time for yourself as a human being, such that training at that junior level is just not something that I think that the senior lieutenant department heads have enough time to sit down and fix. Because one, you have to sit and tell them, here's all the stuff that is going on, here's all the references. Also, I have got some gaping holes in my own knowledge, and then these these things just sort of amalgamate into a big, like a biggest problem is how do we fix the junior level issues. Also, by the time you become a department head and really by the time you become a second division officer, the, the problems of being a, of training the JOs and the problems of becoming an officer of the deck and getting your swope in are just not something that you think about. And that's not because it's any less challenging, but it's something that you've already done and you're moving on to the next challenge. Being department head is not an easy task. And you know, being a second division officer, you've got your own priorities. So a lot of it is taking the stuff that you already don't know and those holes and being able to train people who have no idea what they're getting into and these these issues and these holes in the training and these really lack of you know commitment to have, building up a lethal fighting force to have pre- just presented these kinds of problems the, the likelihood of the average jo sitting down and reading the rules of the road in their entirety and learning and memorizing in the way that i believe that you should and frankly i think captains probably also believe that they should is just it requires a lot of personal responsibility, and I'm not certain that that's a good way to legislate the, com- the lowest common denominator, which I, I think a, a way that you have to do that when you're trying to build a, 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 an officer and a SWO up from nothing, which is ultimately what you're getting as a first-door divo. So when we first read your article, when you submitted it to us a few months ago, uh, here on the staff, uh, my former boss and I, and then one of the other editors, we all read your your opening line which is i'm a surface warfare officer who cannot drive ships and we went whoa Uh, (laughs) and uh you know you go on to say although steeped in hyperbole the statement above speaks to the holes in my professional knowledge similar to those of most swos trained in the present system and so a lot of this came out in the comprehensive review the strategic readiness review after the mccain and fitzgerald collisions last year that there were real gaps in training and that the model that the surface warfare community had gone to after the what the, the late 90s, early 2000s, where they'd gone to swaths in a box, uh, where there was really no surface warfare training before you went to your ship. You go to your ship. So tell us a little bit about the training that you got between uh, the Naval Academy after the Marshall Scholarship and then you went uh, to the Spruance. So was there a was there a school that you went to, or did you just go straight from the Marshall program uh, to the Spruance? So there was a school. Um, the basic division officer course had been set in place about two years prior to my coming back to the fleet from the Marshall. Um, my class of folks that went in directly to fleet were in the first iteration. So it had gone through a little bit of some growing pains and had become something that it offered you a small taste, but ultimately... 
once I got to the ship, it was nowhere near what I thought was enough to prepare you as a division officer, to be able to be a functional ship driver, to be able to manage a division and, and operate in the fleet and such that you could really be an addition to the team. Um, as I understand it, it has improved since then, and I know it's gotten a little bit longer, but I'd argue that it's probably still not enough. Yeah, you mentioned uh, on page 15 in, in your article, the Surface Warfare Officer School is making headway in overhauling the division officer sequencing plan and training pipeline first tour divos are now 30 months and second tour division officer tours are 18 months uh, and that the schoolhouses have spent more time learning the craft uh, of driving a ship as well as fundamental rules of the road that's a that's a bigger uh, focus of the of the program at BDOC um, but it, you know what your article says uh, and it was you know also talked about several times particularly after the collisions last year by uh, a couple of the surface warfare officers on our editorial board who mentioned, you know, the Navy's got actually like 200 different versions of of SWAS, which means that <laughs> because you get, tra- you know, everybody gets goes to OJT on their ship and each ship is different. And and this also comes up, uh, you, you bring out this point um, that a ship's life cycle and a junior officer's training pipeline can be out of sync. And this has been brought up, I think uh, it was Lieutenant Brendan Cordial, one of our other other proceedings authors who, who's a SWO who's written about um, training and, and some of these issues pointed out that, you know, if you get to your ship at a time when she's just come back from deployment and maybe going into an, an, a you know shipyard availability, you're going to have months without underway time, without, you know, OJT that's of any value to you as a ship handler. Um, so the, the sinking an officer's you know, training track with the ship is also a really important thing, but it's, you know, a challenge to do. So how did that marry up for you when you, um, when you reported to the Spruance? Where was the ship and how did that help you or hinder you get your swoop in and get your qualifications? Um, so I, I reported the ship right about before they were deploying on their Pacific Surface Action Group deployment to the Western Pacific. And I think that it, it would benefit you as a surface warfare officer to have gone through the training cycle because a lot of what happened with me is that you were expected to perform at a level and in a way that was just not realistic considering how much how the the expectation and the pace for which you were operating in the real world environment and to speak to the point about the the cycles not marrying up um i'm about to go into the yards for a very very long time so i'm about to experience what a lot of my other cohort experience we were going into the yards which is you got to get your qualifications real real fast otherwise you're gonna have to start working backdoor deals with other officers or with other ships and with other captains saying hey i've got these this personnel who need to spend time in a ship and they need to get qualified i can't do that because we're bolded to the pier please take them and please give me your blessing i trust you and there's a lot there's a lot of that that, that there's inherent risk in shuffling people around in an already very fragmented, very tribal system in which you do, as you said, get so many different types of surface warfare officers because it's ultimately dependent on that captain at that cross-section of time and how that captain wants to manage their training program for better or for worse. So you use a lot of really personality-driven personality-driven systems such that you can get a really great ship with a really great captain and you're set up for life and you've got all these foundational building blocks and you just had these great opportunities that a lot of us, and I'd argue a very large majority of us don't have and have to cobble together something such that you can make it work. I think that 
I have a sports and athletic background, and this feels to me like putting like a like a, a high school football player who's been playing for about two years onto the team with the Patriots and expecting him to just catch the ball and perform. That doesn't seem to me like a good use of resources, especially when you know, these are human-driven systems. These are you know with the Sailor Twenty 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 Five thing, it's very clear that the Navy is looking at this kind of stuff, such that we were, are willing to re rework issues. Why then are we continuing to put our junior officers through this ridiculous, like through these hula hoops, such that to, to fit an old system and to hit these wickets in their career, and be, being the, the two-year two-year mark? I think that the thirty-month thing is meant to blow that up, such as you will get the whole ship cycle. But I don't think there's any guarantee in that, and I'm curious as to who is actually monitoring the ship vice personnel um, individual timeline. Well, to take your NFL analog just a little further, I think the... Go, go uh, Patriots, by the way. Yeah, no. Um, <laughs> anything but that. Um, so to take your NFL analog just a, a little further, so it, not only would it be like getting a high school player on the Patriots, it would be like you don't teach them the Patriots playbook. You just like start yeah. playing and go, why did you run that route? And it's like, well, that's all I know from, you know, my triple a high school team what do you guys do like well we do all these you know really esoteric and advanced plays and like well, i don't know anything about that right and and so you wonder why we lost or why we had all these interceptions that could be an indicator so to me the military every time we have this conversation and i can't remember if i've used this example on the show before um but it reminds me of what led to the creation of the swifty program in tactical aviation because every squadron had its own training program and you were very dependent in terms of standardization on the skipper's focus and whoever was the opso and the training officers and did you have a hard charging jo who may or may not have been a top gun grad um and so from squadron to squadron knowledge of the outer air battle and the ways to fight it and you know when we're talking pure cold war air to air you were kind of hung out in terms of you know, your knowledge versus Brand X, your sister squadron or whatever. And that's why Top Gun would visit these, these commands and realize there was a huge disparity. And that's what led to the Strike Fighter Weapons Training Instructor Program. So, um, Caitlin, is there, is there anything besides, you know, because we've talked about let's have more at sea time. Um, I don't know what we're doing in terms of formalizing some of the informal, but are Let's speak about those mechanisms, which are standardizing across the fleet and and making it less dependent on the individual uh, atmospheres of any given wardroom. I think that I think there needs to be much more emphasis in the beginning. I need I think ADOC and BDOC need to be built up heavily, and given the the funding and the training and the personnel, such as that, you don't run into these things these similar problems. Uh, of just training officers who don't really know what they're doing in time and management. We need, we need divos to be able to drive ships, which is very difficult, and I'm certain that the Department of the Navy, you know, doesn't, hasn't, there's a lot of problems involved with getting you know, actual training ships to the fleet concentration areas, mainly who's going to, who's going to man them. And the Navy itself needs to see these kinds of training commands as a, like an upward career mobility place. Like, no, a lot of, you know, the lieutenants, a lot of the, the, you know, the captains who want to take a billet to something that they know isn't going to help their career. This needs to be something that is taken so seriously that the best of the best come back and teach because those are the people that you want you know, spreading that culture of you know, lethality and rules of the road, this, that, and the other advice, you know, some random guy, which is what I'd argue a lot of what happens right now 
some some M1A1 sailor who's not particularly passionate about teaching, doesn't know how to teach, doesn't have the training to teach, such as that all of this information is getting garbled up and mixed up in the nonsense, and you still you still have a bunch of a bunch of swells who don't know how to drive. I think when the collisions happen, there's a large portion of us looked at that off to the deck and looked at what we saw and thought, oh, my God, that could have been me. I know I did, and that's part of the reason why I'm the my opening line is there's so what what if it was me who didn't see that one, you know, one blip on the screen? And that, that is not a way to run a force. <laughs> so I, you gotta, I think you got to start with – I would motion for taking the YPs, take the YPs away from the academy and set them up, you know, Norfolk and San Diego and have, like, let people learn and go back to – and nobody wants to say that there needs to be more time at sea, but ultimately if you intend to be a service worker officer, you need to spend some time at sea – and learn the craft and enjoy the craft. And there's so much to be learned and it's such a cool job in theory that, but we were, I think we're, we're not giving it its due credence because for whatever reason, SWOs have been, it's, it's been the, it's been the war for the device that everybody got. And I think that that's changing. They just took it away from LDOs and there's, there's an economics piece where you've got so many people fighting to get these pins and get these qualifications that they're starting to run them through like, like a factory. And that's, that's detrimental to the community and it's detrimental to the force, especially in the event that there was ever a major at sea action. Um, I don't know how, whether or not that's going to happen or not, but it doesn't, it's not good business to assume it's not going to happen and that, that the carrier is going to be the one to fight the war. Yeah. You just touched but, on, you touched on a couple of themes that we've heard that have been in proceedings and, and several of our other guests on the podcast have brought out one, you know, YPs, right. The, the, the importance of, getting practice, reps and sets, uh, driving ships. And, and there we've had several different proceedings, Proceedings Today articles where young SWOs have recommended, and even older SWOs have recommended moving some of the YPs from the Naval Academy or, or buying more, you know, and putting them at the fleet concentration areas so that people have a chance to spend time underway uh, practicing those skill sets, of, you know, seamanship and navigation. Um, you also just mentioned, uh, you, you know, you mentioned the collisions of 2017. And in the article here, you say, I spent September to January in Yokosuka or Yokosuka. Yokosuka. <laughs> Fleet player, huh? Yeah, Yokosuka. <laughs> Sorry. Uh, in the aftermath of the collisions of the 20, in the, the Westpac. Uh, tell us what the conversations were that were happening in Yakuska uh, after Fitzgerald and McCain among the JOs, among the SWOs there in in Yoko. Uh, what what were the conversations? I think in the beginning, a lot of it was incredulity. Yokosuka is a very special place in such that it's so small, and it's so forward deployed, and it's there's so much underway time that you take a lot of. Do you take a lot of comfort in sort of the the, the group struggle, so to speak? Um, so there and there's a lot of the, oh, this is how it is, and this is how it's always been, and they, it, it's so sad that this has happened. And everybody really band together after the first one, like oh my gosh, I really need to fix that. And then I think that later on, when the CNO and when and when the and when Congress and the Pentagon and everybody started looking at at Yokosuka, like what is going on over here, it got very defensive. Um, and I think it's as I think it's pretty natural because there are all these problems that have been bubbling up to the surface for like years and years, and things that people already knew. I know that um, the Seventh Fleet Commander uh, touched on it, but really throughout the fleet, everywhere, it's, you've got these 
these these kids who are coming out to the fleet and they're you know bright eyed and bushy tail and they want to be able to, to do they want to be able to do their jobs, but because everybody is so focused on getting the missions done and then you're so exhausted that you don't want to spend time to train the ensign because you know ensign just you know figure it out and watch and learn and it's that's it, it was a it was a very it was a very humbling experience, and it was also kind of scary in, in that you you don't even know where to start to help people because everyone is, the maintenance schedules are this, that, and the other. Like, oh, there's, you know, remember, you know, Antietam was still in layup, um, and they were just getting to get out of the yards from when they went, I, I believe it was Antietam. They were they were from their grounding, and then you've got two other ships, and then you got to move the maintenance around, and then in, in addition to that, you got to deal with the maintenance of being in the yards, and you have all these different ships with all these different competing interests that, Teaching the divo is is just not high on anyone's priority list, and you you can't say that. And everybody wants it to be high on the priority list, but it's not. It's it's a long burning, a slow ember of a fire. Vice the oh my god, we have to fix this problem right now. And because it's not like that, it's and because it's not on the front of anybody's mind, you're just things are just going by the wayside unless you have somebody who's really on top of things. So this gets us to another key aspect of your nobody asked me but, which is your idea that. Fellow JOs have got to fix this problem. You take that the onus on yourself and on your colleagues, saying that hey, if the Navy's going to do OJT, we the JOs have got to help fix this. We've got to spend. Uh, we have to admit our, our our problems. We have to admit our own deficits in training uh, and fix them. And we have to dedicate the time as department heads and as senior JOs uh, to to spend the time and dedicate the effort to training the young JOs who were the young ensigns and JGs who are reporting to our ship. Talk about that a little bit. Well, let me also put a finer point on it by quoting you from the article with respect to what Bill just said. You said, uh, I believe the Navy's leaders are serious about fixing the issues of training across the fleet with the litany of of other uh, associated issues regarding maintenance and operational tempo. Still, I am not convinced the Navy's junior and middle management officers share the same commitment. So that's that's quite a statement to make, um, and it relates to what you were talking about in terms of the dynamic around y- Yakuska. Um, so what what needs to be done, and how how do the JOs, t- you know, all safety is local, right? Um, uh, so mm-hmm. h- how, how, what, what's the next step to affecting uh, the, the solution to what you've teed up as a problem here? So I think to to say that there's a problem and it's always been this way and that there's nothing that we can do to fix it is very defeatist, and I personally have no time for those people. And I think that you find that a lot in the middle management ranks because you have a lot – and in the, and the junior ranks because you have a lot of people who have the opportunity to leave and it's not their problem and they're not worried about fixing their problem and ultimately they just go away and then it won't be their problem. Um, I think that's irresponsible. I think that that goes against the the core tenets of what it means to be an officer and that if you don't have the personal responsibility to make it work to a certain extent, then why are you why are you wearing the uniform in the first place? Um, I think that so to touch on the senior leadership bit, um, I was ripped out of San Diego to go help with the Yokosuka problem yeah problem um, over the span of a week. And it is very clear to me that people want this to be fixed because nobody wants to see needless life, life lost at sea. There's something really, really tragic about what happened in McCain and what happened on Fitzgerald such that 
it, it, how, how can you not be like that, right? Especially as a captain who's made their entire career as, as, as just defending, you know, values. And maybe I'm a little bit idealist, but I, having had enough interactions, I very much believe that people want to solve this problem. I think that at the lieutenant level, you don't see that. And you don't see the policy work that goes into it. You don't see the wonking that happens. Okay, so if we move this schedule around, if we work on the first generation model, if we, if we take this from there and this from this and put this into curriculum building, like that stuff doesn't come out into the public. And a lot of that is because nobody wants to make promises that they can't keep. But as a result, you've got a lot of very jaded lieutenants who are busy doing the daily grind who are doing their divo stuff and are, you know, doing their normal training as fragged. And it's easy to get mired down in the, just it's the everyday tasks of being you know, a junior person in a very large bureaucracy. So how do you fix that? Um, I think that you've got to look around at what you can fix and look around at the idealized system of the PQS system. So, okay, so PQS system has lots and lots of problems, obviously. PQS system has, like, OJT has lots of problems, obviously. So why don't we then amalgamate that kind of information? I do not believe that nobody knows the answer in all of San Diego. Why don't we talk more to each other? Why don't we have a database or some sort of place where we can have all of this information? There's a lot of pushback by this belief that, oh, you can't learn how to do soil in a book. And you can't write all these things down. You can't you know, forward on all that institutional knowledge. But I, I really think that's just a lazy answer for somebody who doesn't want to do put in the work. There is so much information. You've got all of these captains and commanders who have done all of this for so long. And for whatever reason, I have yet to find any sort of institutional knowledge passed down. I think that we're starting to get to that point, but we're so we are we are so against this notion of you can't like learn slow from a book that things are just getting lost. And I think that's a really good place to start because if we can alleviate one of the main many pressures of being a division officer, i.e. You know, managing your division, knowing how to manage your personnel, knowing how to write evals, knowing how to drive the ship, knowing rules of the road. And the way you make, the way you alleviate those pressures is you take something that's an easy fix such that you can then spend much more time doing the more complicated esoteric stuff as you guys mentioned. So if we can get past the rules of the road, if we can get past, you know, maybe the basics of being a division officer, then we can really focus on the stuff that's really hard and the stuff that really requires 20 years to get better at. So you're saying that SWO should go to a school where they learn, where they really learn rules of the road and seamanship and navigation before they show up to their first ship. That that BDOC uh, ought to be a lot more strenuous, and that that when you show up on a ship, you've you've got a, a much more developed uh, professional knowledge, and it's not as much required on OJT. Is that am I am I getting that right? I I yes, but. The JOs being able to fix it is such that you recognize sort of the issues that we are faced with. This is not going to change any night and soon. We, the, the, there's not going to be a new flight school within the next year and a half. So b- between now and then, we start amalgamating all this information, and we start taking the PQS systems much more seriously than pencil whipping, as everyone knows happens in the fleet, and making sure that people actually know this kind of information for when things really do matter. So one of the things that came out in in the reviews and and lots of proceedings articles, and we saw lots on our blogs, uh, particularly in the few months after McCain and Fitzgerald last year, was just how overworked people are and how much administrative burden is put on junior officers and and on senior enlisted as well. Just, you know, the checklist, the endless checklist, the administrative 
um, you know, um, examinations uh, and inspections that are done in the fleet. And it's like you, you finish one inspection and then you get another inspection team coming the next week and another inspection team. What are some things, you know, name one or two things that you think the Navy could really get rid of without losing much that would allow people to focus more on the professional requirements, you know, that rules of the road knowledge, that uh, ship handling capability, tactics, um, without really losing anything? Is there something that's, you know, that you see that you've dealt with that your fellow JOs and colleagues are saying, why do, why do we have to do X that, you know, the Navy should just eliminate and, and would give us, you know, so many more hours in a week or, or weeks in a year uh, that we could practice this stuff that's much more important? Uh, off the top of my head, I think we could get rid of the at-will qualification in the SWO process, in the SWO training process. That was, I think that that qualification, so it's designed to be the anti-terrorism watch officer, uh, which goes along with the, whole, the anti-terrorism plan so we can save the ship from terrorists while we're in port. I think that was a very reactive qualification, and you ultimately have an entire entire division and, and on carriers and almost entire departments that are designed to do just that. And the having a having a, a lieutenant junior grade be the primary tactical you know point of contact in port just doesn't seem to make a lot of sense to me. Like why why are these junior personnel worried about being tactical when they can barely barely drive a ship? If we if we are to keep with the main school model and that you know tactics come at a at department head school, why are we why are we putting this in slow training? That doesn't make any sense to me. Um, I think too, you've got a, what, what ends up happening when I think commanders start competing for EPs is that you have a lot of people putting extra stuff onto the guidelines and the department of Navy guidance and what is required. And we got to cut things down to the bare bones. I, those recommendations exist for a reason. Such, I'm just one top, uh, idea off the top of my head is you've got a lot of people that do EKMS inspections weekly, vice, mo- vice monthly, I believe it is, or, or biweekly, where you have a lot of people that put extra work on, like extra credit, such as that we all look better and that this is the best way to manage the ship. And I don't know that that takes into account the priorities of the junior personnel on board, such that there is then more time for training. Because that's because all of this extra credit then piles up into, I have to get all of these things done because these are the captains or whoever's priorities, and I can't do anything for myself to be a professional. Um, I'm trying to think of. Uh, so I'd love I, to see a completely new fit rest system too. Yeah, well, as same as it's ever been, right? Um, so I, I'm still having a little trouble understanding the the problem, and therefore I I can't sort of see what what the solution would be. And again, I, I want to just use this um, Swifty analogy, right? So I, I think we've determined that let's just call it the flight school is the ship handling, the the basics, the compulsories that. I think we all agree should be at uh, a, a schoolhouse uh, uh, sort of atmosphere. And then the other things that, that can only be done at sea, we need standardization uh, across yeah. the fleet. Um, so to affect that standardization, I don't know, is it is it a poorly written instruction? Is it a, you know, the, 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 the SWO document that you mentioned, uh, the officer requirements document on page 15? So if it's not that, um, or that's something that can be fixed or is is being fixed in terms of, you know, the task in your PQS that is defined and therefore you can gun deck it if you want, but seriously to accomplish it, it's pretty obvious from the document what it is you need to do. Um, 
So I'm wondering, would there be any value in having a, a, a Swifty uh, program for surface warfare officers, where a cadre of senior lieutenants, junior lieutenant commanders, go to a six-week course or however long it would be and focus on becoming the training officer in a very standardized way. And I don't know, maybe this is department at school. I mean, maybe it already exists. Uh, but but should there be somebody on board who is the underwriter of standardization, or is that supposed to be the skipper? So that's really supposed to be the skipper, um, and that's really supposed to be part of the training, what the training officer does. And we have uh, what's called a war- warfare tactics instructor program, which is growing, but I don't know how much credence it's got within and around the fleet. But the problem, the problem really at its core is that people are overworked, they don't have a lot of time, and you've worked into the part where they don't care how you get the training done so long as it looks like it's done. This is the it's it, it's an era of the, the the PowerPoint looks pretty nice, so I must be doing a good job. And I think that that's the, the challenge that we're getting to. I I, I I hate to make it sound so bleak, <laughs> um, but we have all of these these idealized checks in place, such as these things can take care of themselves. But ultimately, if there's not enough personal responsibility at the level of the JOs, which I think in some cases there really is not, that this system falls apart. It, that if there's if we if we cannot hold us ourselves to the highest levels of integrity to be able to say this is broken we do not have we are not trained to do this and then have someone listen to, and not not be so I mean, maybe overly optimistic is maybe not the word but to, to to hope that it'll work itself out is I just don't think a way to run a force and I think that this is kind of the problem that a lot of these small ships are facing is because you'll, you'll come up to the commodore sir we we cannot support this kind of watchful and ultimately there'll just be so much pain that you figure it out, but not necessarily in a way that is safe. Like we'll have, you know, the afloat training group is just to go through the entire training phase with us and they'll, they'll train you to the best of your ability and you'll make your binders look really nice and then you'll put your best guys on watch. But that does, that's not a good, that's not a good check for your average divo at, you know, you're at two in the morning doing watch in the, in the South China Sea. You can't, you can't have those guys or often you just don't have those guys on display and you hide that as much as you can. And this gets into the tribalism. So, so how are, how are you and your peers feeling, uh, your, your group and, and the folks in, in your wardroom, um, uh, the fellow SWOs aboard, uh, uh, Vincent feeling about the ability to solve this problem. I mean, is this just going to have to, is it obviously this isn't a quick fix, right? Is this going to be a generational thing? Is it, is it, you you know, your generation of, of, of SWOs will be different in terms of prioritization and, and, and so forth. I mean, you, you, you've just teed up an entire culture, right? And, and uh, what became a battle rhythm or a, an op tempo that, that makes these high minded ideas about training and, and where the schoolhouse would be almost moot. And that's kind of why, why it's got to come from us. Because it's got to come from a lot of people who really believe that the system can work. And I think that due to our lack of training and due to our lack of time seeing, just being so crushed under a lot of operational requirements that really haven't been analyzed all that recently. Um, I believe 2015 was the last time tier one through three requirements was looked at. Um, It's, it's got to come from the grassroots or, or it's not going to change. 
And I think that that's a lot of the reason why my peers and even more senior folks are less willing to believe there's going to be any sort of substantial change. But if it comes from the roots, and I think enough of us at this point are so fed up <laughs> with with the way things are going and not knowing how to do your job well, such that I think that we're finally in a point where we can make and affect real change. Well, reading your article and listening to you, Caitlin, uh, I'm, I'm of a mind that it can be fixed. I am as well. And I will, I will throw this out as a note of a little bit of hope and optimism, right? And I think this is something that you should look for there in San Diego, because I know this group led by the VCNO. So Admiral Moran wrote a piece uh, that we published in Proceedings Today in July. Uh, it was a status report one year later, one year after the collisions. Uh, what's the Navy doing about making sure that that doesn't happen again and making improvements in the areas that were found to be in, in real crisis after uh, those two uh, ship collisions? Uh, and in it, he uh, mentions this thing called the ROC, the Readiness Requirements Oversight Council or something like that. He's leading this group. They're going out to the fleet concentration areas. They've already been to Norfolk. I think they were there two weeks ago. They're coming to San Diego. Uh, so you and your fellow JOs out there in San Diego, I would I would uh, offer this up to you to look for it. Look for that announcement that uh, Admiral Moran's going to be there because in his proceedings article, uh, he used the term, um, you know, we are looking for brutally honest feedback. And uh, our CEO, Pete Daly, Admiral Daly, uh, is good friends with Admiral Moran. Uh, and uh, he's talked to us about, you know, how Admiral Moran is viewing this this responsibility, right, to make sure, hey, we had 17 sailors. Every time that Admiral Moran goes somewhere, he talks about 17 sailors killed. Uh, he is not letting that go. And so his group is coming out asking for brutally honest feedback about, you know, where have we made strides forward and where have we yet to make progress? And he wants to know that. So I think that there's, you know, both your your proceedings piece here uh, offers some real good ideas and you, you identify problems, but you're also offering, hey, the JOs have got to be part of the solution. Uh, but others, senior people are trying to make a difference uh, and are asking for that feedback right now. And it sounds like you and others are willing to give that very brutally honest feedback about what's got to change. So uh, just offer that up for you and for um, all your shipmates and, and fellow JOs out there in the waterfront in San Diego. Well, the, the other thing about being published in Proceedings is we can guarantee you that the vice chief has already read your article. And so, again, that is uh, when, you're, when you're in the independent forum and you're in the pages of Proceedings, you have the kind of impact that you hope you would when you put pen to paper. So uh, good job there, Caitlin, already. Um, so we're, we're at the end of our time, unfortunately. Um, thanks for using the independent forum to good effect. Um, and and, uh, and please, uh, you know, let, let's keep in close touch here with how things go as, uh, as you go forward here. Yeah, keep writing and uh, tell your, your shipmates, especially your JO shipmates, that we want to hear from them. Yes, thank you. Thank you for having me. All right. right. Fantastic. Great conversation. Thanks for joining us today and uh, give our best to everyone out in San Diego. We will be there in uh, uh, February for the West Conference uh, at the Convention Center. So hope you are um, hope you can make it to that and, uh, and come up and introduce yourself. Of course. Okay. Thanks, Caitlin. Thank you. Right. Bye-bye. All right. Before we go... Um, 
this is the last show where our midshipman intern production team will be helping us with the podcast. Um, so um, the, these are this is a, a melancholy time for us. We've had a fantastic summer with three different blocks of interns. Um, so uh, thanks to uh, our interns in this case, Adam and Krista are here uh, as cameraman and answering your questions on Facebook. Um, and uh, so they will be heading back to uh, academic year starting very soon. Unfortunately, <laughs> the summer is almost over. Um, and uh, so Chris is a firstie and Adam's a youngster. So, uh, you know, we'll, we'll, this, this is not goodbye. Um, but uh, we just wanted to recognize our interns for the good, actually fantastic work they've done. If you look at our blog, both our US and I and history blog, a lot of midshipman content. Um, we're kind of uh, uh, shepherding some long-term projects through the, the pipe to see if they can't make it to the pages of proceedings and or naval history. Um, and we'll earmark them for uh, for various stuff as uh, as we go forward here. So, I uh, just wanted to say in this form, thank you uh, for your help, um, and it's been a blast having them on board. Yeah, I'll second that. And uh, just a reminder that uh, victory begins at the U.S. Naval Institute. Have a great week. Mm-hmm.